You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week we are chatting about our new book, Thoughts on Building Strong Towns, Volume 2. And I have on the guy who was our original uh, our original financial backer, like the big money bags behind the whole startup of Strong Towns, uh, one of our earliest contributors and a longtime friend, Nate Hood. Nate, welcome to, back to the podcast, man. Hey, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. It's fun. It's fun to be able to, you know, point to you as like the the first donor. I love I love doing that. Uh, I um I, I like to consider it the best five dollars I've ever spent because I think it wasn't it wasn't that much. It was maybe like five or fifteen dollars. No, but, but it, uh, it it like propelled us to uh, to new heights. So um, and and I look too at from joining the Strong Towns movement, how many people I've met locally or nationally who I've become good friends with or develop professional relationships with it's um it's yeah. really been shocking and it's really been something special yeah th- th- there's no doubt it, it really has been hey but before we get into your your contribution to the book i want to i want to back up and hash through that uh that that thing you did uh, a while back for me uh pitch hitting with the orton foundation um, you wrote about it recently, but we we never talked about it on the podcast. And I think it might be kind of fun to to go back through that one just briefly, because uh, it it kind of it it I won't say that it makes every point we've been trying to make, but in, in many ways, it's like a poster child for not strong towns thinking. So let me set it up. I, I'm involved with the Orton Foundation, which is a a, a great group. Uh, really love them, and they've done a lot, particularly for small towns across the country. They had uh, asked us to come and uh, and take part in this community set of community meetings to try to help with this project that they had going on. It was in Vermont, right? Yeah, it was in rural northern Vermont. It's a small, beautiful town called Newport, Vermont. Right, right. So I couldn't go. I, I couldn't make it to this thing, but it was kind of a big deal. And it, we, I'd been working with them for quite a while on this process that kind of led to this project. And so I, you know, turned to my, my steady, reliable, uh, trusted friend and said, hey, would you be willing to go do this? And, and you said, sure. Talk a little bit about what went down then. So, well, let's start off by having bad weather. My flight to Burlington was canceled, so they routed me through Manchester, New Hampshire. I'm like, it's New England. Everything's close. I get there and find out it's about a three-and-a-half-hour drive. Right. And we have to, like, get up. I think our bus is leaving at sometime, like, 6.30 in the morning. So I remember speeding through Vermont. I ended up getting a speeding ticket. Oh, so, no. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember that. Oh. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, $170 to the state of Vermont, I guess. Um <laughs> So uh, right out that Montpelier, so I guess that's my uh, contribution to Vermont. Get there, we, we hit the ground running, we go to the small town. It's really this, like, picturesque small town, or at least that's my perception of it coming from the Midwest. Um, I think that they 
being surrounded by other beautiful towns in New England, we're having a little bit of an identity crisis because their cute downtown wasn't quite as cute as everybody else's cute downtown. Right. You had a huge developer that was um, kind of coming in. He runs a ski resort outside of town. And they wanted to do this renaissance project that was funded by this new type of financial mechanism called the EB-5 program. Now, what the EB-5 program does is it allows wealthy foreigners to invest half a million dollars into a rural or depressed economy with a $50,000 processing fee, of course. And that money is invested in that rural location or inner city location, for example. So uh, you had partners that were pooling this money and part of now, the now, renaissance. Pa- pause, here oh, for, yes. pause here for a sec. So you, I, I imagine like lots of foreigners lined up just out of benevolence to want to invest a half million dollars in poor uh, rural American cities. It, wh- what is the, uh, what's the catch there? Well, the, well, I, I mean, there's a lot to it. Okay. So first of all, I actually have sort of an issue with the, and this is aside from anything that we were doing there. Right. I, I kind of dislike this idea of buying yourself into citizenship, Yeah. right? Like give us your floor, you're tired, you're huddled masses with half a million dollars plus $50,000 process. <laughs> Does it, does it get you to the front of the the line for citizenship? Is that essentially what it does? Yeah, I believe it gives you a, um, a green card visa for up to, I, I believe, seven years or five to seven years. And uh, then from thereafter, you can, you know, become a citizen. I, so I, it is basically move to the front of the class. I love the I love the kind of juxtaposition of, you know, rural communities and you know, I, 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 here's what I can picture. I can picture like some Saudi, you know, <laughs> prince or whatever, for whatever reason, you know, coming up. Like, here's what I can picture. I can picture some Muslim, like, you know, Arab dude with a, a little bit of oil money who wants to be an American citizen who, <laughs> you know, budges in line, basically. And I, I don't know if that's what's going on, but that's the image that I have in my mind of this program. And it. It's kind of funny when you juxtapose that with these small rural communities. I, I can imagine the, you know, the cognitive dissonance that creates in places. But go, go on. I, I, I digress. So the money isn't directly going to the community. It's going to imp- approved investors. Right. The one that was working with Newport, Vermont, and the Renaissance Project that they were doing in their downtown, and a few other projects sprinkled around the region, it was based out of Miami. Um, and uh, it looked like the person who was collecting these half-million-dollar um, fees uh, was actually funneling money um, and actually apparently squandered all of the money. Oh. Um, unfortunately, all of this happened after the town decided to tear down a downtown Main Street, probably the best two blocks of Main Street. <laughs> so now they have a big, what did I call it, a big cold hole on the ground in northern Vermont or something. Yeah. But but unfortunately, it was, I mean, it was bad timing. Um, certainly, I think they would not have torn down their downtown for the new glossy mixed-use building that they were going to build that, you know, it, which was actually crazy kind of in its own right to think that you're going to build luxury condominiums in this town where you can buy a house for $80,000. Right, right. So, I mean, that, you know, was wishful thinking by locals. Um, and I think that they were really tempted by this 
idea of big money and big investment. And it really, really backfired because they tore down their built environment, like the history of their built environment, the most important street in town. They tore down. Yeah, I mean, to try to, to get the to listen, try to get the big score, right? Yeah, if you li- if you listen to them, the buildings were not in the best shape. Oh, dude, but, um, I, I saw you, the anybody bu- can renovate anybody can renovate a building, oh. right? Um, well, and you and, and I are you and I are from Minnesota. I mean, I, I maybe by Vermont standards, this was a, a you know a less than ideal downtown, but by Minnesota standards, I looked at the before and after photos, and the before photos would be, you know, like the nicest two blocks in central Minnesota. It was gorgeous. If you dropped a pin where I grew up and drew like a fifty mile radius around there, it would be the best street in that fifty mile radius. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, just... And if not the best, it would definitely be like top five. Right. And they tore it down. They just ripped it down, hoping they, for the big score. And then, you know, the money got squandered and it, it never happened. It... And to tie it into the election, the yeah. guy who squandered the money used part of that money to buy an apartment in Trump Tower in New York City. <laughs> uh, isn't the FBI involved at this point or something like that, too? Yeah, I believe so. And Congress is actually revisiting the entire EB-5 program, which they should. So the EB-5 program, you know, in the next couple of years, it it may not actually be a program, which um, at this point, although I love to see investment in rural areas, it might not be a bad thing if this program just evaporated. Right. It's just, it it makes me sad because, you know, it's, it's almost like, these small towns and, and I, I've, I've worked in so many small towns and I've, I've been in so many in this kind of situation and you almost have like an inferiority complex. Like, you know, we're not good enough. We're not worthy. And then someone comes along and, you know, pays you a little bit of, of attention, a little bit of love and you just fall over yourselves and say, yeah, we'll rip, we'll rip down our downtown uh, in the, you know, the hopes that you would come and build a luxury condo. And, and, you know, all that might mean to us, as crazy as it sounds as the, the outsider looking at it now, but wow, it just, it breaks your heart. In retrospect, it kind of reminds me of the music man, which is a reference that I think some of the older listeners might get. Um, are you familiar with that Broadway play? Uh-huh. They turned it into a movie in the sixties. <laughs> it's basically a man who comes to a small town in Iowa. He's a, he's a huckster and he convinces the town to buy band equipment. And once they buy all the band equipment, he pockets the money and just leaves town. See, um, I thought you were. Th- this is this is my cultural reference. I actually thought you were referring to the Simpsons episode, the Simpsons, the, the monorail. Yeah, yeah, the Simpsons episode is based off the music. I know it is. Yeah. So there you go. Tied <laughs> it all together, Jack. Uh, oh man. Um, so the, I, I just uh, one last thought on this one. You, I, I think, are the only person. I, I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure. You're the only person who's actually given a curbside chat presentation besides me. And you did that at, uh, at this thing, right? Yeah, I did. And it was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, I think you've done a couple thousand more than I, so I think <laughs> yeah. yours is a little more polished, but it was a lot of fun. The way that they broke it up, I think I actually ended up giving it twice. So that's awesome. That, that makes me really proud. I'm really happy. So for the, for the book thoughts on building strong towns, one of the best posts, that you wrote last year that, uh, that, that everybody loved and that really resonated was this one on the fight for pedestrian safety. 
And I, I'd like to I'd like to start off with kind of what was done uh, in a proactive way and why it was done, and then we'll kind of get into you know what the official bureaucratic response was because this was all you know this was the city trying to fix a problem, right? Yeah. So the city and advocates got together and decided to make a pedestrian improvement. Uh, this was in the city of Minneapolis, South Minneapolis. They basically wanted to add a pedestrian refuge where a bike lane would start thereafter. So they ended up installing it. And let's just, let's describe it for people. You essentially have raised concrete. So it's basically like raised concrete with like four ballers. It's a pretty simple, uh, basically pedestrian structure. Yeah. So people can, you know, not have to walk over an additional parking lane while crossing a street. And part, part of the nice thing about having that raised concrete, um, jut out is it prevents people from making basically free right turns in the parking lane. Um, so, so that really helps in this case. Well, they put it in, and then a couple of days later, just shortly after installing it, there were complaints that cars kept hitting it. Right. So then the city, Public right. Works, um, <laughs> after we went through like this long process, of, you know, what probably were endless community meetings, lots of engagement. Just one guy in public works, no, probably higher up, in all fairness, in public works, just doesn't want to receive these calls anymore of, hey, I want to speed through this neighborhood and turn right fast, and I keep hitting this thing that's designed to make it safe for pedestrians. Right. So they just uninstall it. So basically, you had an entire process that went through that took quite a long time, and then you have one person who says, I don't like it, and then it's just removed. The, the thing that was astounding to me, too, is that you know, th- this was something that – and I, I, I really admire the city of Minneapolis. I mean I, I think of all the cities that I've interacted with, Minneapolis actually, particularly in the last few years, has had a really strong ethic towards doing things – uh, to protect pedestrians and to make the city more walkable and to, I, I think, kind of turn the balance of the streets from 90% cars, 10% humans uh, to something that would be slightly more balanced. So the actual installation of this seemed to me to be very much in character. But then you have this thing where, okay, where, you, where you're trying to protect people, cars are, drivers are hitting it. Doesn't that, I mean, what what does that signal to you? <laughs> Signals to me that the pedestrian needs a little more protection than what was actually built in the first place. Yeah, I'm actually thinking, to my to me, my response is if, the, if automobiles keep striking this thing, if drivers keep hitting it, then maybe you need to actually make it, you know, more intrusive or bigger or somehow, you know, more protected. Um, no, that's not what they did. And really, the point of the post is that, well, one, it's important who's working for the city, Um, but it's that it's really tough to do anything that doesn't meet the status quo. And the fact that you can have all of this process, political will, the advocates are in, the politicians are in, and then you do something, and then it can, based on the bureaucratic structure, just takes one person to say, I don't like it. Let's cut it out. Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's just an uphill battle to get any improvement that might be bike and pet friendly, even in the city of Minneapolis, which I would entirely agree with what you said earlier. Uh, the city of Minneapolis is way ahead of 
so many places. Oh yeah. They have um, a great mindset. It's, you know, doing these projects can just be like banging your head against a brick wall as an advocate where you're just constantly fighting for the smallest improvement that in your mind makes so much sense. Hey, there are cars turning here and it's not very safe. I don't want to die. Right. And then, right. I mean, so, so that's your mindset. And someone's like, well, I think cars should be able to make a free right turn here. You know, like the the language and the dialogue, it doesn't even match up. Well, I, I liked, I appreciated too how you went through and showed that, you know, you have this really, really, I said, willy. You have a, a really <laughs> wide, <laughs> you have a really wide curb radius um, and a turn lane on a one-way street. So you kind of combine three signals to automobiles. Hey, you know, feel free to move very fast yep. through here. And then, you know, amidst that, you know, signal to, to like, there's no complexity here. Go ahead and turn fast. You're asking pedestrians to just step out and cross. And this to me seemed like the base humane kind of thing that you would do to start to, to dial this back. How do you think, um, how do you think this changes over time? I mean, is, is this something that just as the culture changes that one person in public works uh, you know, won't be sanctioned to be able to go out and do this stuff? Or, you know, do we just need like a decade of retirements to, to change mindsets? Or how, how, do you th- how do you think this alleviates itself over time? I think all of the above. Yeah. I think, the, I think it starts with culture. You have to have a culture that's willing and able to do these things and, you know, put up with people calling and complaining that they're hitting a concrete median that's set there to protect pedestrians. Um, yeah, I think they, they, it starts with culture, and everything kind of permeates from from there. Now, I think that there, I'm hesitant to say that we need an exact code change because I know that changing the standard, yes, it would be better if we changed the standard to allow for more approved bike and pedestrian facilities. Because starting, like, right now, if you want to do anything that's not part of the status quo, so if you're doing, like, a mill and overlay or just basically just redoing the road, if you just want to redo it as it is, which is, let's just say, what we've done for the default, which is auto-oriented, you can just do it. It's a clean, easy process. But the second that you start making changes to it, maybe the Federal Highway Administration doesn't think that it's part of an approved set of standards. They'll let you do the change, but you have to go through this long process to do it. Now, where this complicates things is many projects, funding is coming from multiple sources. So for me to qualify for county funds or the park district funds or state funds, I'll need to hit certain timelines. And time is, of course, money. So by doing any of these changes that might be innovative, you could be delaying the project by six to eight months. And if you look at a place like Minnesota where not a lot of road construction is being done in the winter, you could actually delay projects by a year or two by trying to get in some biker pedestrian friendly facilities. It almost, so, it almost forces it to like the lowest common denominator of whichever jurisdiction is the most backward in a sense. Yeah. 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 yeah, so so I think that that's, that that's a huge problem, and I think that we need to allow for more flexibility in that system. 
Um, and hopefully, you know, we'll get there. But I think that it really starts with culture, though, before any of those things can change. The culture of how we design roads and how we design places needs to change. Well, let me tell people how they can get the book. Uh, there's uh, the, the essay here by Nate. Uh, we've also got stuff by Grayson Johnson, uh, Andrew Price, Rachel, uh, Johnny Sanfilippo, Daniel, um, whole, whole like group of people. You've heard a number of them interviewed here on the podcast over the last few days. Uh, you can go to strongtowns.org forward slash publications, I think is what, I think is what Rachel set up. If not, uh, you can also get it on Amazon. Uh, we, you know, it's right on there. We, we were, um, Number rank number three, the third, uh, you know, highest selling Kindle book. Um, the last time I looked in our category, which is like public finance or something. And we were directly beneath uh, or, or directly. Um, yeah. Following, uh, Ben Bernanke's latest book. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I obviously have some preference on which one I think should, uh, should <laughs> people should be reading, but you know, Let's uh, let's let's get this above Ben Bernanke. I, I think that's uh, I think that's an all that imperative. we can all that we can hope for is that Ben Bernanke goes to check the same ratings and he's like, hey, what's this number three? That hey. sounds interesting. Maybe I'll look into that. What is this? I, I should uh, I should educate myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Hey, thanks so much, Nate. So nice to talk to you. Hey, always always fun, Chuck. Thanks right. again. Keep in touch. Take care. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.